0: And welcome to the Hustle and Bustle podcast. My name is Nicole Bennetts and I'm an urban and regional planner. And I'm the host of this podcast. Each episode, I bring you conversations with city shapers and urban thinkers, leaders in the field of urban planning and city building. I'm located here on the beautiful Gold Coast in Australia. We are one of the host cities for the Summer Olympics and Paralympics in 2032. The next 10 years is being described as the golden decade for our city and our region. The conversations on this podcast will help us understand the opportunities and challenges ahead, so please take a minute from your busy Hustle & Bustle day and let's have a great conversation. And welcome to Episode 8 of the Hustle & Bustle podcast. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Greg Tupakov. Greg is a highly regarded development professional and he's the General Manager of Alda Developments. Greg is a urban and regional planner at heart with a wide array of major development project experience, taking projects from that initial concept through planning, execution, and onto sales and marketing. Greg's credentials allowed him to take Australia's largest master plan city flagstone to the market in 2016. Greg is a passionate industry participant and development spokesperson. And whilst being developer side for the majority of his career, is someone who I've found to be very considered and balanced in his views of development, planning and generally working to get together collaboratively for the betterment of our city and our region. Welcome to the podcast, Greg. How are you today?
1: I'm good, Nicole. I'm very good. Thanks for that intro. <laughs>
0: That's all right. I'm glad to hear you're good and I'm glad to hear that you are won uh, you're her uh, grand final in netball this morning, which is excellent.
1: Yes, she is uh, a very happy ten uh, grade 10 uh, student right now. Um, and we'll be celebrating, I'm sure, with uh, chips and chocolate and soft drink.
0: <laughs> Just what you need. Yeah. Uh, now, I approached you to be on the podcast today as I really wanted to hear from someone who gets what it's like being a developer, a property developer. Um, I think, you know, my previous guests on the podcast have been planners who are either in government or consultancy or academia. Um, and But you're in the leadership team of one of the city and region's kind of major developers so I'm really just wanting to get that different perspective today and sort of unpack that a bit what do you think?
1: Yeah sure happy to um, talk through um, this side of the fence so they call it but I don't think there's any sides of the fence actually we're all in it together.
0: That's really interesting. Yeah, and I agree. I I, um, I hate it when we talk about what side of the fence we're on because it sounds like there's a divide. But I think, um, I hope today's conversation will show how we all need to work together to get the best outcome for everyone, our cities, our communities, and and everyone who's involved in development and planning. Um, so maybe I could kick off by asking you, what's the role of developers in shaping our cities and our regions?
1: Yeah, it's a uh... Interesting question because um, quite often it's just the short answer, you know, delivery, um, you know, make a lot of money, um, put the product on the ground. But when you really think about it, the developer's role is to take the planning scheme, town plan, uh, neighbourhood plan, interpret what's in there, which is generally pretty clear. We want residential here in this city or we want industrial there. Um, We want, you know, growth centres, TODs, all of these Acronyms and terminology that we we come up with in our planning schemes, and the developer's role is to then put that on the ground into a product or a um, you know a use that someone can um, use. And it's interesting because a lot of our schemes are just a residential zone, and whilst we might break it down into you know low density residential, medium density residential, emerging communities residential, the developer has to then go out and say, well, you know, a house is not a house, is not a house what sort of a house are people going to want to live in? Is it an apartment, a townhouse, a detached house? Um, do they want to live on shop-top housing? So that's where their job is to then research and talk to the market, identify what people want, what they're prepared to pay, um, how soon they want it, how long they're going to live there for, and then they interpret that in within the rules of the planning scheme. So, um, you know, it's hand-in-glove, the glove being the planning scheme and the developer uh, you know, putting the hand in it and manipulating and forming that outcome. So whilst it has always been a dark side, light side or a this side of the fence or that side of the fence, a lot of the developers, I'd say more than 95% of development that occurs is doing exactly what the planning scheme wanted and even that 5% is still doing what the planning scheme wanted. It might just be pushing the boundaries or a little bit ahead of where the planning scheme thought it might be.
0: Yeah, well, that's yeah, and I and I guess you know we can't have well, I don't know whether we can have development without developers, you know, and we talk about that, you know, development is kind of the lifeblood of a lot of you know, um, growth and change and and kind of excitement in our cities, and you know, it's it's I find it really upsetting sometimes how demonized kind of developers can can be by the communities that kind of live and 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 you know work within these areas that you know wouldn't be there unless there there was originally a developer who came along and and built the houses and the you know the jobs that they're in so I I just why do you think developers are demonized by some governments and some communities
1: yeah that that demonized question is one probably that stems in my view from um, the Australian society is a both a capitalist socialist society, that's how I think it's described on Wikipedia or any number of other um, descriptions about our society. And capitalism by its nature is, you know, profit driven, um, business growth, uh, success, not failure, not, you know, just giving things away for nothing. And socialism is fairness and equality and, you know, not not too many uh, hierarchies and the like um, and so when you mash those two together in our society, they're, they're almost like like polar opposites, but they're not. Um, and you'd have to sort of read up a little bit more on capitalism and socialism to understand it quite deeply. But what that does is it causes a conflict um, in the planning and development sphere because the socialist side of government um, delivering town plans in very generic zones or saying we'll do industrial over here and we'll do residential over there and we'll have green space in the middle, sometimes might not suit the capitalist ideals of the landowner who actually has this really great parcel of land right bang in the middle of somewhere where it should be developed and there should be a lot more outcomes that um, you know take advantage of infrastructure or being near services or schools. And so developers then have to push the boundary and sometimes, as I say, they're ahead of where you know, the the market might be. When I um, was on the Yarra Bilba team, um, I remember very early on in 2003 when I joined that team um, that it was never going to be developed. It had a rural residential approval issued by then by Desert Council um, and it was sort of brought forward as, well, rather than do rural residential, we should do this site. At that stage in 2003, environmental issues were coming to the fore and, um, land shortages were coming to the fore and where are jobs going to be is coming to the fore and so there was all of these different uh, angles that were clashing ultimately when you see Yarra Bilba now you think well we've got spectacular growth because there's you know growth at Yarra Bilba Flagstone Ripley Valley where was it going to go otherwise mm. um, and it's good that it was planned and controlled into certain areas but it could well have just been you know left rampant and that's where developers get that demonization because they're left to, um, you know, change a zone or alter the outcomes that the neighbor thought they were going to get by putting in a pack of townhouses or a high-rise. And that's where all these terms, you know, nimbyism come from, not in my backyard. And it's the developer interpreting the planning scheme. And if the planning scheme doesn't have enough land zoned, then, you know, we, we sort of fall short. I, I get quite angry about, places like Brisbane City Council, which I, I work in, having emerging community zones still, and they've had them for decades. And I really, uh, angry is probably the real, wrong word, but I get frustrated because I think it's a, it's a new world city. They go on about how great this city is. We should know what those areas are going to be. We know they're, they're going to be residential or industrial or something else. Why not just accelerate that zone? The actual product that goes onto the ground and where the roads go and the services, that, that can still be worked out, and that is always worked out by the developer. But it's almost like this hesitancy to let the community know we're going to do it, I'll just leave it up to the developer to do it, and then they get de- demonised for it. <laughs> you know, they, they mm. cop the, the bad brunt. When the other thing is they're the ones that made profits in the good times and, and it's not shared, um, and they're the ones that go bust and leave people out to lurch. So there's just many factors that sort of stick to a developer as the bad guy, but they're not, they're not the bad guy. As I said earlier, they go hand in glove with delivery of what a city wants.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and I guess so. On that, why do you think it's so important to have a positive development culture in cities? Like, why do we need to sort of, I guess, um, reduce the amount of demonization and reduce the amount of sort of conflict that does occur through that development process to bring everyone closer together and remove the fence from between kind of governments and communities and and developers?
1: Yeah, well, the, I guess the real question is what if you encouraged a bad culture? Where would your city go? What would it look like? Um, It wouldn't be a a very attractive city. It'd it'd be failing economically. It'd be a challenge. There'd be, you know, polar um, parts of the society wanting one thing um, and other parts wanting other things. And I think if you don't have a positive planning culture and development culture and construction culture, you're always going to be at loggerheads and, and that's stressful on people you know right down to the personal level planners get really stressed i remember in 2003 to 2006 planners were under immense pressure because we you know the market was just surging pre gse and there was just this demand for all sorts of um you know approvals and um you know, you've, I'm falling behind. I need that plan ceiling this week, and our processes back then were somewhat um, archaic, still, and and bogged down in in not a sort of a positive culture of delivery, and the developer as a customer of council, not just uh, you know the opposite side of the fence. And so that that culture is really in sort of certainly in Queensland, but I think around uh, Australia has been taken up as a culture of if we're not positive about it, no matter which side of the fence we might think we sit on. Um, we're going to be negative about it, and that negativity is a real um, drain personally. But then also economically and for the city, it's a it's a real drain. So I think you know overall we've got to um, focus on the outcomes. And like I said, ninety five percent of the time we're getting in the outcomes. So that five percent where there's conflict, that's probably not a bad thing. Um, and I say that seriously in that. Perhaps government can't see the wood for the trees. They don't know they should be zoning something for uh, a higher and better use rather than preserving it as clapped out, you know, bushland country. Or Mm -hmm. they've, you know, left these farms that are rural farms and the people that live there are, you know, really anti-development because that's where I've lived all my life. But, you know, we're, we're a big city and we've got to share the pressures of growth and that might mean that these, you know, farmland areas have to move out and that's what's happening around places like Forest Lake, which... Finished up in you know two thousand six two thousand seven and Doolandella and Ellen continue to be sort of farmland areas you know rural residential type areas which really uh, the urban footprints move well beyond them so you know that that encouragement by council to deliver those and developers are in there converting those and back when they started they were you know it was oh, these terrible developers but. Uh, luckily, council was on their side because, again, where, where are people going to go? We've got spectacular growth in Australia, right or wrong, mm. the growth's there. You've got to put people somewhere. You can't just ignore it. And so that's what, that's what happens. Again, high-rise, that's another classic example when we came up with the Todd uh, concept, Transit-Oriented Development. It was to really say, look, we need to do high-rise, but we'll do it in the best possible location. We'll do it around transit. So the community saw the trade-off there. It wasn't just high-rise rampant developers could buy any parcel of land they wanted and up goes a block of units next to a whole heap of single-level dwellings. It was key targeted areas, really good smart planning Mm -hmm. and development rolled out in a fashion that the community was relatively happy with. Okay, there were some people in Todd's that might not have been happy, again, when you've got those growing pains, you've got to go through that pain and maybe identify where the opportunity is and where you're going wrong or where something might be better. And I don't begrudge that sort of 5%, um, you know, that people get upset about because that actually keeps us sharp and reminds us um, where we overstepped the mark, pull back, where we have overstepped the mark and was a good thing. Right, let's rewrite our planning schemes and actually, you know, deliver positive outcomes.
0: And so do you think that, in those 95% of the times when developers do meet the planning scheme and do kind of advance what I guess was, you know, planned by the council and the government, state government, in consultation with the community, do you think the community are on board always with those 95% or or do you think there's still, even though it's in the planning scheme, um, the community maybe don't fully understand what the planning scheme does allow
1: yeah, I, that's that's probably bang on the latter part that I think cities are big now. Planning schemes used to be written by the community and planners and sort of everyone knew everyone or you were five steps removed from knowing someone and you were able to have your say either through people or directly. Our consultation and plan making is really challenging now because our cities are so big and we have so many development fronts and quite often, you know, um the uh, government might say, look, we're going to roll out this new plan and this is what it means for you, but it, it doesn't it's not until it affects the person in their backyard that they yeah. really identify. Oh, I didn't know that there was you know four-story apartments going in there and I'm upset about it. Now, I see both sides of the fence there. We need, we need the growth areas, but if we were not really communicating with them directly, knocking on their door, um, phoning them, having a good conversation with them, especially when zoning changes and pressure comes on that's quite different. Then we've probably let ourselves down, but we simply don't employ enough planners or consult, you know, community consultation people to do that yet. But I would like to think um, as we start to really advance planning as a profession, which is about a hundred years old. That we we start to identify. You know what? Really, everyone must have a say. It's almost like census night. You must have a say on your um mm. your town plan. And if you choose to click the don't want to have a say, that's recorded. So that when something happens near you or later, and you're making a song and dance about it, you we can bring it back to a more conversational level. But. Um, You know, you you were asked to have a say, and you might not have understood, and that's okay. But we'll talk you through it. But that this is why we had to proceed with these zones and these things. And look, I think the other thing is um, people just don't have a lot of time for property development or planning. It's you know doesn't float their boat, so they don't really pay attention to it. And again, it's not until something happens that um, they they feel affected and aggrieved by it, and they've got to run off and you know uh, talk to people about it. And that's where a developer cops the brunt of the sort of, um, you know, demonisation. Um, but I think also governments nowadays, everyone does realise that governments nowadays have a responsibility there. And and this it's interesting at the moment, we've got this real socialist environmental tussle trying to protect and preserve species that are on endangered lists or going onto endangered lists, yet we've had a culture of um, developing and buying land and developing and we're in this real tussle now between what are the areas worth preserving versus what are the um, areas that are not worth preserving but hang on, I've got to be fair to everyone and 10% of your site's got to be given up in green space so we end up with all these pockets of green space so we end up with all these bioretention basins everywhere mm-hmm. when we, we really need to regionalize and capture those differently. So it, development's going through that interesting phase at the moment about how it deals with that and you know, you've got 40 rural residential lots and there's a big green space that's got to go through the middle of them because it's a creek or whatever, those, you know, 10 properties that are affected by that get sold to no one and the others get a mozza from the developers. Um, again, the government's trying to get its head around that and identify how everyone can get a fair share from a socialist mm-hmm. point of view but also a capitalist point of view, maximise the return for everyone. Um, so, it's a, yeah, it's challenging at the moment.
0: Yeah, it's, and I mean, I've been on that plan making side, you know, um, for a number of years previous to this role and that picking a winner or a loser, you know, where that infrastructure needs to go and kind of, you know, what it where it makes sense from the infrastructure provider's perspective versus where it makes sense from kind of a, a town planner's perspective versus a, an owner's perspective is, is quite divergent. And I think um, having a really clear decision making framework around some of that stuff will only help us now and into the future kind of explaining why we made those decisions and, and how that kind of community needs to grow around those decisions.
1: Yeah, 100%. And, you know, m- most of the times we actually get it right, but no one says anything when you got it right. But yeah. uh, I remember Guy Gibson telling me, sure as hell, they'll tell you when you got it wrong.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and don't they ever.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Look, I, I kind of want to Uh, pick up another one of your I know it's one of your passions um, and it's about industrial development I think I've had a few conversations on the podcast about housing and how we need to provide housing for communities Um, but what I haven't really spoken much about is industrial development it's kind of that smelly no one really wants to think about it because it's not really the sexy um, kind of land use you know yeah Um, but I know it's a passion of yours and I'm keen to understand you know, why is industrial development important for our city and our region?
1: Yeah, I I really um, sort of came into a bit of experience with industrial when we were delivering the back end of Forest Lake. There was a BSIP-6, was the sort of last stage of industrial. Um, And then more recently I've delivered uh, some industrial lots in uh, Yatla and it was a three-year process. So we were in touch with the market and understanding where people were and what they wanted and who the buyers were for three years and a bit. Um, We even sort of touch onto people after they've bought to make sure they're happy and things are being delivered. And um, one of the real challenges was uh, an asphalt plant was going into a zone. It was zoned high impact and um, they – really wanted a massive amount of certainty that if they bought these lots, they were going to get an approval. And we just can't guarantee approvals. But it made me think there's people that buy lots, say, in Surface Paradise, Broadbeach, even Palm Beach, knowing that they're going to get an approval for medium density or high-rise apartments, they know what they can get and I thought to myself you know it's a real shame that there's so certain around a resi and where we know what we're doing for residential and to, even to an extent some of the commercial but industrial where it is a business decision it's not an emotional decision for the purchaser like residential it's a business decision businesses aren't buying because they're they're hamstrung by well will I be able to use um, you know operate my business there um, and we had a number of inquiry that uh ultimately, they didn't buy or they balked at buying it. It took them quite a long time to buy because they had, you know, I've got chemical tanks out the back for the resin for the, um, you know, the fiberglass that I use or I'm currently located in Beanley but I need to move because I've got these big metal stamping machines. I make tools for the army with these big machines that stamp out the, uh, the tool or cut the tool. I don't want to be near, you know, residential. And so a high-impact zone to me was the perfect zone um, but they were – we just couldn't give them the certainty of the approvals. And when I looked at it even further, I thought, you know, we really haven't changed many of our regulations around industrial for 40 years. There's still a 15-metre height limit in industrial when compared to residential. We now have unlimited heights or huge swathes of areas around Todds in the city changing to, you know, higher higher number of storeys or higher number of metres. We still have large setbacks on industrial. We still have huge car parking requirements, still have very poor public transport in industrial. Like There's not a train station in Yatla, yet we've got the Brisbane to Gold Coast line that runs up and down, stopping at all the residential components but not servicing the industrial. And so I just thought to myself, we're we're not giving industrial the attention. Why? Because it's, uh, as you say, not sexy, but also there's no... There's no mass market there. It's not like you're selling to thousands of residents who will, uh, at the drop of the heart, unreasonably complain to someone. Businesses don't complain. They just get on with it. Mm-hmm. Yet I think Brisbane in the latest industrial strategy, 13% of the gross revenue for the city will come from industrial areas. And mm-hmm. that to me is quite a big number. So then travelling around um, the country and the world, you see how industrial areas are pushing the envelope Um doing things in all the latest, you know, supermarket warehouses are starting to push over 15 metres into the 25, 30 metres because they're dark storage warehouses where robots are running around and they'd rather go up than out because it's starting to get expensive. In Singapore, they're going up four and five storeys even just for warehousing. So all these semi-trailers are, you know, circulating up these big buildings and they're doing the warehousing vertically. And I thought to myself, we're not on top of this, we're not ahead of the game. Planning is sort of just letting industrial go. And it's actually being put under huge pressure by by Resi. And you and I talked about, you know, when there was a sort of a look at industrial in the Gold Coast, where's the next growth area? And it was all these competing interests. And so it was like, we'll give some of it a future industry area and we'll, we'll let the developers sort it out. But that's the wrong decision. It should be... You know, we need industrial in these areas. These are the areas that are going to be impacted. We're going to push forward. Um, and, you know, somewhat I think that we forget that key industrial areas are what make our city. In Brisbane, Forex Brewery, you've got Paul's Milk Factory, you've got the Glass Factory next to that in West End, like key industrial areas. I can tell you concrete batching plants, you need them everywhere because, uh, yes, you need concrete when you're building new things, but as cities evolve and go through change, they need to keep using concrete to, you know, even just re pour footpaths, but there's all sorts of reconstruction and upgrading and and you need these things, but people look at them as, a, you know, outdoor activity, noisy, dusty, and so they frown upon them as though, and and you introduced it as that smelly sort of terrible use, but I can tell you from the 94... EPA Act, it's gone through and cleaned up industrial like we've never thought of. And again, planning schemes and systems almost haven't recognised that the EPA Act came and did something and our planning systems did something and industry itself did something. And we've got a really you know great industrial look and vibe, I'd say, No different to how you've got a mega amount of high rises along the surface paradise beach ruining this perfect pristine piece of beach with high rises. But that's for a purpose, tourism purpose. But why don't we say, you know, this is for an industrial purpose, a positive purpose. So we should be making height limits up to sort of 40, 50 metres um, we should be allowing all sorts of activities and certainly high impact zone land should be open slather for any normal industrial. So I'm not talking about noxious, like a, a nickel refinery or a smelter or an abattoir. They don't go into high impact zones, but asphalt plants, concrete batching plants, recycling yards, all these things that we need or we're, we're encouraging, like recycling, they need to be far better supported rather than you know put under the microscope and controlled to within an inch of their life and not allowed you know the setbacks to push like we've done with resi like we've pushed uh, you think about it nicole we've pushed residential setbacks we've pushed podium heights we've you know we go underground above ground uh you know we do so much with residential now that we never did 15 maybe even 20 years ago at least at least 15 yeah and we've completely changed but industrial we've sort of left it behind and Mm. um, said, you know, it's still okay because no one's there complaining, no one's pushing. And so I've sort of taken this passionate view that I want to actually start to make some change. I want to make up for my terrible thesis I wrote in 1996, 97, (laughs) <laughs> um, on industrial codes and regulation it was it was the worst thing ever I barely passed but um, <laughs> yeah maybe t- 20 30 years later I've decided ah yeah that's what I meant
0: <laughs> <laughs> a lot of life experience since then yeah. look I, I think um, I think you've nailed it honestly and you know I, I remember looking at some some of the stats um you know, just recently around our job density, like where are our jobs on the Gold Coast? And Yatla's at the top of the list. Yep. You know, we have the greatest job density in our city in Yatla. You know, um, you know, you would think Southport or Rabina, no, no, or even, you know, Bundle, no, nope, they're they're down the list. You know, Southport is second, but yep. Yatla is miles ahead. It, it's yep. way ahead. And, you know, as you've said, those those kind of um, plants and batching plants and breweries and milk factories and recycling yards. We only need more of them as the population grows. But it seems that we're reducing the amount of land available for them because, as you said, other uses are, are taking precedent. You know, residential is encroaching on these areas and we seem to be kind of back zoning industrial where we we used to have high impact in, industrial in, you know, many areas of, of the Gold Coast. And and now, you know, a lot of those have a medium impact, which, you know, it might not sound like a big deal, but, you know, you and I both know that the definitions and and what you can and can't do on those, you know, areas between medium and high is quite significant.
1: Yeah, um, and, and the pressure's coming more because Logan Council um, decided they weren't going to have any high impact. They saw it as too much of a risk. and And maybe it's in the definition, maybe the state government should say we shouldn't call these things high impact industrial because it's seeming like it's bad but Logan said no high impact so it's only got medium and low so where's the high impact go they can only go to Yatla, Eagle Farm and out west to Ipswich and Ipswich is a smaller city with you know confined sort of transport routes Yatla is right on the M1 not far from the Logan Motorway huge populations it taps into and it doesn't ha- it's running out of high impact land and it's constra- what high impact land is there is sometimes constrained by the creek lines or the Preservation for wildlife, and so yeah, it's it. In my view, we are in a serious position of concern. I know council recently on the Gold Coast wrote uh, things saying, "Oh, well, most of the high impact land was actually sold to low impact uses." But I think perversely, and they really should go and talk to industry in a far more detail the outcome there is because it's very easy for a high, uh, medium impact use to say, well, should I buy in medium? You know what? If I buy in high impact, I definitely can do it. And yeah. so that's what was happening. They were buying in high impact because either A, it was the only land available or B, they were dead certain of approval and that left a lot of the high impact guys still you know, thinking should buy or not buy and by that time it was sold out. But in our um, you know, development that we did, we sold to a concrete batching plant we sold um, to an asphalt plant. We sold to a boat manufacturer, high high use of chemicals. We sold to a precast yard to do precast concrete panels and like the high impact zone because of the noise of dropping panels or you know banging machine um, formwork and whatnot. So more than half of our our sort of subdivision was sold to high impact. The rest was sold to transport and other sorts of uses, but they were largely around. There was no other land around and. This was uh, coming into the sort of pre-COVID, post-COVID boom. <laughs> For some reason, it all boomed and um, they had nothing else to buy, so they, they bought in there. But I think that sends a strong signal that we actually got high-impact users in the high-impact land and if you talk to them, they had have a devil of a time yeah. and they really procrastinate about doing it or not because of that certainty around approval. So and that's the an interesting
0: bit is, is that um... – that, you know, residential builders are developers and they've got that risk appetite, you know. So the people that deliver that residential development, you know, have that risk appetite. But the people that... seek the approvals for the industrial land uses are often the business owners, these people yep. that will only do this once in their lifetime, or if, if they're lucky, you know, yep. they, they try and kind of find that, and they don't know the planning system, they don't know where they can push the boundaries, they don't know kind of the political web that they're about to go in, and so they need that certainty, because this is not their bread and butter, this is not what they're kind of um, good at, if you know what I mean. You
1: Absolutely, yeah. And, and that is, that is you bang on and they do not go into a decision to buy anything, whether it's a new piece of machinery, hire a whole heap of people or a block of land without certainty that it's actually going to do what they need it to do. And I think we need to really look at our industrial and we really need to say if the Paul's Milk Factory or the Glass Factory or Forex Brewery decide to move from where they were because we've got this pressure to grow the CBD and they were moved out, they can't go to Logan, they could go to Ipswich, there's not really enough land in Yatla, but they could go there. We're really squeezed ourselves for where those uses could go. What could happen is those uses could just say, I'll leave SEQ altogether. I won't I won't be here, I'll, I'll relocate somewhere else, I'll decentralise, I'll go to China. And that is the worst thing we could possibly do. So I think actually mm-hmm. Australia-wide, certainly Queensland-wide, We have this view that industrial should be far more controlled and we should actually be opening up more industrial land and realising that we need it desperately and that we shouldn't put it... Like I think we have almost put a stranglehold ourselves, the planning industry, on manufacturing. We're making it really hard for people to buy, get certainty of an approval and run a manufacturing operation and I think that is pretty shameful we really need to say what sort of manufacturing uses can we get in here do we want the milk factory in our air certainly we do like i know logan would love to have it there i've I've asked the guys but at the end of the day it's a high impact use no matter how clean or high tech it is it's a high impact use and you can't have your cake and eat it too so they need to adjust Um, everyone needs to adjust i think
0: yeah, and I totally agree and I think it requires everyone coming together to to solve that one because I think there's a bit in it for the state. You know, they need to look at some of their standard definitions and standard zonings and, and land use and then councils in actually looking for the land and, and trying to work out how to deliver the infrastructure um to some of that new high impact industrial land. But yeah, no, look... And Thanks get on so the much, positive Grace.
1: front and not the demonization front of industrial, <laughs> <laughs> pretty
0: much. Exactly. Let's not demonise developers or industrial. I, I Correct. Love it. <laughs> Look, I really appreciate uh, your time today and and agreeing to be on the podcast and sharing your thoughts. It's um it's been great, and um I hope everyone has taken a lot from it.
1: Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Nicole.
0: Cheers, and thank you for tuning in to the Hustle and Bustle podcast this week. I appreciate your support. And I would appreciate if you could continue to share the podcast with friends and colleagues so that more people can find out about these conversations and I'll keep making them. Um, You can also follow along on Instagram, hustle underscore bustle underscore podcast for guest announcements and to provide feedback on any of the episodes. So that's all from today. Thanks again for listening. I'll catch you next time. Bye for now.